And I want to invite all of you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Colossians chapter 3 this morning. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. Uh, Lord willing, next Sunday we'll return to our regular series in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, I was planning and actually preparing to preach on Luke today, but I found my mind and heart being drawn to this text, and I finally gave in and said, you know what, I just need to preach on this passage. So that's what we're doing today, and we're looking at Paul's instruction to households in Colossians chapter 3 into chapter 4 verse 1. Because we're diving in, let me say something here about context. Since chapter 2, Paul has been speaking to the Colossians about the the means and the character and the motive of Christian living, of growing in Jesus' likeness and sanctification. And now in the second part of chapter 3, Paul Paul begins to get a little more personal. Uh, He has spoken about um, life in the local church, that is how we are to relate to one another as believers in a local congregation, and now he gets... He gets in your business. He gets into what we might consider our private lives, that is, our family life uh, together in the home. He pushes even further down. And he, uh, he has some things to say that I think are challenging to hear from our particular uh, cultural moment, and we're going to have to work really, really hard to make sure that we are not filtering Paul's words through our own prejudices, but actually hearing them, I think, as God intends us to hear them this morning. And to help us to do that, I want us to to look at this passage under uh, two basic headings. First of all, uh, Christ, the Lord of the family. Uh, For Paul, it's very clear here that Jesus Christ is the Lord of the family, And that's going to challenge some of our assumptions about how families operate, I think. And so Christ, the Lord of the family. Then secondly, I want us to think about the family in Christ the Lord. So Christ, the Lord of the family, and the family in Christ the Lord. Um, Before we do that and consider these two things, let's pause again and pray to ask for God to help us hear and understand his words. Let's pray. Lord, we approach your uh, word now with expectation that you will meet with your people and minister your word to us. We pray now for the ministry of the Holy Spirit that we might hear and understand and apply all that the Spirit is saying to the church. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Beginning in Colossians 3, verse 18. Wives, Submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. 
Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Well, let's address the elephant in the room right away. That This text does not sit well with people uh, who have a heightened awareness of the prevalence of the abuse and misuse of authority in society as a whole, but within the church and family in particular. Uh, Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands. He says, slaves, actually our translation cleans it up a little bit with the word bondservants, but it's, it's not bondservants, it's slaves. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And I think in the age of abuse scandals, plaguing the Roman Catholic Church, the Southern Baptist Convention, and yes, within uh, evangelical circles in general, within the age of the Me Too movement, for many people, Paul sounds, let's face it, frankly, just repressive, doesn't he? Uh, There are some who read Paul in precisely that way, actually. For one, let me give you a couple examples, actually. One scholar, Elizabeth Forienza, says that the only way a pastor should ever preach on texts like this one, where we have Paul's view of family, is, quote, critically, in order to unmask them as texts promoting patriarchal violence. And so, according to her, the teaching of the Apostle Paul here inevitably promotes and justifies patriarchal violence. Or listen to David Harrell, who suggests that Paul's agenda here is, again, quote, to convince the dominated, the subordinate, that it is right and proper or inevitable or in everyone's best interest for them to remain willingly and voluntarily in their place and to fulfill their duties. And then he goes on to write, of course, everyone's best interest may actually mean in the ruling class's best interest. He is reflecting there the Marxian idea that religion is a means for the powerful to stay in power and to keep the subordinated in submission. And then, of course, we need to acknowledge and add the tragic experience of far, far, far too many people, particularly women and children, who have experienced domination and abuse justified by distorted notions of male authority within the church and within the household, perhaps even supported by citations of texts like Colossians chapter 3 as a pathetic excuse to excuse the misuse of authority. And so we have a, we have a big, big challenge on our hands, I think, to understand Colossians 3 together this morning, because we need to hear what this text really says. So let me plead with you as we uh, look at this passage together to set aside perhaps any interfering ideas or notions uh, and, and hold your fire. 
Be, be open to the possibility that what we think Paul is saying and the distressing feelings that we get because of what we think Paul is saying are misplaced because what we think Paul is saying is not what Paul is actually saying. Let's come to this text of Scripture like we should come to every text of Scripture, making sure that we listen to what it is actually saying. And I think if we do that, we will discover that instead of something that promotes patriarchal violence, we will discover something beautiful and God-ordained instead of hideous status quo of abuse and the misuse of power, we will discover a deeply subversive invitation to an entirely new kind of family life because the Lord Jesus Christ is about the work of restoration and therefore this is something that you will only find in Jesus Christ. Now before we look at the at the family life in Christ, I, I do want to note, first of all, how Paul asserts the lordship of Christ over the family. Christ as Lord of the family. That's where we're going to get started here. But Paul, you see, he's been basing, if you had a chance to read Colossians up to this chapter, you'd see that he has been basing so much of what he has to say on the great doctrine of the believer's union with Christ. He said, we have redemption in him, the forgiveness of sin. Chapter 1, verse 14. In him, all the riches of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. 119. As we have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so we are to walk in him, rooted and built up in him. 2, verses 6 and 7. We are filled in him. 2.10. Circumcised in him. 2.11. Buried with him. Raised together with him. That's 2.12, 2.20, and chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. So you see, over and over and over again, it's clear union with Christ is the foundation that holds the whole together. It's the great truth and saving reality that Paul keeps coming back to. So it shouldn't surprise us that as we come into this section of Colossians, that union with Christ is still in view. Only now he adds a note. That the Christ to whom we are united by the redemptive grace of God is Jesus Christ, the Lord of all. So look at verse 18 in chapter 3 and the, uh, the, the instruction to wives to submit to their husbands. Paul tells us that it is fitting in the Lord. Or children, they are to obey. Actually, our translation slightly obscures this, but uh, literally it says... Be, Children are to obey because it is pleasing in the Lord. So Paul is saying, since, since you are in the Lord, this is the kind of life that is fitting and pleasing. That's what Paul is saying here. And then if you, you go on then in the rest of these verses, you see this theme of the lordship of Christ emerging in verses 22 through 24. Slaves, notice they are to obey, fearing the Lord, working as for the Lord and not for men. Uh, verse 24, they are serving the Lord Christ. And then masters likewise in chapter 4, verse 1, are to be just and fair because they have a heavenly master, literally a, a Lord in heaven. So the Lordship of Christ, to whom every Christian has been joined by the grace of God, now determines and shapes the character of our lives in 
every facet, in every part, in every sphere, the Lordship of Christ. So I think if you think through what Paul is teaching here, its, its implications do present a real challenge to all of us. The Lordship of Christ over every part of my life. I think it will actually begin to challenge when we think about it in terms of the household. It will begin to challenge some assumptions, particularly about the family and the way our culture and society has shaped family life. So let me, let me put it this way this morning. I'm just going to limit it to two examples. Paul's teaching on the lordship of Christ uh, demolishes idolatry. Christ as Lord of the family demolishes particular idols that are unique to the household. And I want to give you two examples of that. The first one that I want to mention here is that Christ as Lord of the family demolishes the idolatry of the family itself. Paul's teaching here, I think, on the Lordship of Christ confronts the idol of family in our lives. Let me just, uh, looking at this text, let me read to you. I don't read to you often, so bear with me here. I want to read you a quote from Pastor Kevin DeYoung on this because he sums up what I think I want to communicate. Here's what he says. Virtually every pastor in America can tell you stories of churchgoers who have functionally displaced God in favor of the family. Parents who go missing from church for entire seasons because of Billy's youth soccer league or Sally's burgeoning volleyball career. Committed Christians who would never dare invite a college student or international over for Thanksgiving or Christmas because holidays are for family. Longtime members who can't be bothered to serve on Sundays or reach out to visitors because the whole family gathers at grandma's for lunch. Churches that implicitly or explicitly communicate that marriage is a necessary step of spiritual maturity. Christians of all kinds that will jettison their theology of marriage and their convictions about church discipline once their children embrace unrepentant sin. The idolatry of the family can be a real problem, either for the church that ignores singles and gears everything towards married people, married couples with children, or for the individual whose practical commitments underscore the unfortunate reality that blood is usually thicker than theology. Ouch. I don't know about you, but when I read that, it hurts. Uh, It stings a little bit because he's exposing how the idolatry of family in our culture, and yes, even within our Christian subculture, often distorts us and leads to dysfunction. And the lordship of Christ challenges some of the ways we think about our rights to do and to live how we please within the context of our family. Paul is really saying, he's really saying, if Christ is Lord of your life, then he's Lord of your marriage. He's Lord of how you relate to your spouse. He's Lord of how you treat your children. And children, he's Lord of how you obey your parents and how you relate to your siblings. We cannot enlist Jesus 
in support of our family life with the assumption that he's simply going to endorse whatever we want or whatever we choose because Christ is the Lord of the family and we are not. And so you see this text challenges us and first of all, his lordship at least confronts, if not demolishes, the idolatry of the family itself. Then secondly, let me mention one other thing here. The lordship of Christ confronts the idolatry of power or the misuse of authority. It's so common in the world and in our culture and sadly all too often within the church and within Christian homes. But look at how Paul speaks to slaves and masters for a moment beginning in verse 22. You know this is uncomfortable reading. Let's just face that. It's uncomfortable reading today in a culture that that rightly views institutional slavery as repugnant and has all but removed it. But because of that, I think we often miss how provocative Paul really is in what he is saying here. To really hear the Apostle Paul, we need to understand a little bit of the context. So let me say a few things about that. First of all, we need to understand that in Paul's day, slaves had no rights at all. They were, they were not considered, in the eyes of the law and in the, the eyes of society, they were not considered to be independent moral agents with personal responsibility. If you wanted to address a bondservant or a slave, you, you would never speak to the slave directly. You would never address the slave as an independent moral agent. You would address the pater familias, the head of the household, the husband, father, master. And so immediately you see that Paul is turning that on its head and notice what he does. He acknowledges that the bondservant or the slave is a responsible moral agent. Slaves receive no recognition in society, but Paul in the household of faith speaks to them directly. He speaks to them as independent moral actors who are indeed responsible before God. And then secondly, in that culture, another thing we need to notice is slaves could not inherit anything. They had no inheritance rights. Look at 324. From the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. And thirdly, there was no possibility. This is crucial for us to get here to understand this passage. There was no possibility of being treated unjustly as a slave in the ancient world. Not because people were not brutal or mean. Masters often were. But because in the ancient world, if you were a slave, you were seen as mere property. So the question of justice and fairness, well, it was a category mistake. Because if you were a slave, you were mere property. And the question of justice was entirely irrelevant. A a master was free to do whatever he liked with his own property. We could take uh, Aristotle. As one example here in his ethics, he makes the point that there's no sense in talking about injustice when it comes to slaves and masters because there can be no injustice in the things that are one's own. So he's saying, we see what he's saying, justice is the wrong category because I'm free to do whatever I want with what belongs to me. That was the mindset in Roman society at that time. But listen to Paul. 
He says, those who wrong slaves will be paid back by the Lord. You see that? See that there? The Lord shows no partiality. So your social standing, whether you're a master or a slave, really makes no difference before the judgment seat of Christ. And then the fourth thing, this is the the really striking thing in chapter 4, verse 1. Paul calls masters to understand that they are themselves actually slaves. He says, you have a master of your own, a Lord in heaven. Now, do you see, if you think that through, how radically subversive that really is? It means you owe rights to your servants. And notice the language that he uses. He speaks in terms of justice and fairness. See that in verse 1, the language of justice and fairness? That was completely alien in that culture, categorical mistake. There was no question of justice and fairness when it came to slaves. But Paul is saying that if Christ is the Lord, the master is a slave, and the slave is a citizen of the kingdom of God with an inheritance. And so now the slave is free and the master under obligation. The master, you see, owes the slave rights that in the eyes of the law that time simply did not exist. So you might ask the question, why, why were those rights there according to the Apostle Paul? And it's grounded in this idea because Christ is Lord. And because you are common brothers in the same Savior. And so just like that, Paul completely subverts the expected patterns of power and the use of authority in his own day. Actually, the, facts, the, the fact that these texts are not oppressive or repressive of women, children, and household slaves is it, it became revolutionary in the ancient Roman world. Uh, Tacitus, a Roman historian, accused Christians of hating the human race. Why did he say that? Well, in part, he said that Christians are guilty of hating the human race because they gave rights to women and children and slaves so that they would refuse to submit to the domination of wicked masters and cruel husbands and, yes, even if necessary, disobey the emperor himself if obedience to Christ required it. So you see, Paul was subverting how the Roman culture functioned. It was radical stuff. It was not repressive or oppressive. It's subversive. He's subverting the expectations of the Colossians about the usual way that power and authority functions in the household. And so here's the point I'm trying to drive at, that the lordship of Christ destroys oppressive domination. The lordship of Christ demolishes the abuse of power. It it shows masters that they are slaves of Christ. It tells slaves that they are fellow citizens of the kingdom of heaven with an inheritance under the lordship of King Jesus. And when you look at history and how it unfolded, that, of course, is why Christians who are sensitive to the teaching of texts like this one found within it the seed of the eventual eradication of the institution of slavery itself. Because if Christ is Lord of your conscience, 
your conscience is free from the dictates of sinful men. If Christ is Lord of your conscience, then you are radically free when you come under the mastery of King Jesus. You cannot ever legitimately use these household texts in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5 to validate the oppression of others. That would be a profound misunderstanding of what Paul is really saying. That's certainly not how the first Christians read Paul. They saw it as a profoundly empowering passage and used it to turn the cultural norms on their head. And so the teaching here, it smashes the idol of family, it confronts the idol of power and reshapes how we think about authority. Because it turns authority into an issue of service in the name of Jesus and gives radical freedom and dignity even to the least of us to follow the law of God and to leave our consciences free from the dictates of mere men. And so first Paul says, Christ is Lord of the family. Reality that confronts idolatry and subverts the abuse of power. It makes radical, doesn't it, make radical claims on our lives and our hearts. And when we bow the knee to the lordship of Christ, our consciences are set wonderfully free under the reign of King Jesus. Now let's think about the second thing that I want to cover today. Let's think about the, the family in Christ to the Lord. We've, we've thought about Christ as Lord of the family. Now let's think about the family in Christ the Lord. Look again at 318. Wives submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Now the form of the word submit connotes the idea of voluntary submission. And in the New Testament, submission is the standard default stance of every Christian toward God, James 4 7. In Hebrews 13, 17, it is the stance of church members towards church leaders, elders. In Hebrews 5, 21, it is the stance of the whole church of Christ. In 1 Peter 2, 13, of Christians towards civil magistrates. And of course, the New Testament also teaches the, the idea of submission, the submission of Christ himself as the incarnate son in obedience to his father's will for us and our salvation. And so that means the word submit does not imply in any way whatsoever a demeaning servitude or inferiority in any way. Instead, it's a posture of humility and reverence that is characteristic of every single child of God toward God, toward one another, and toward those who are placed in positions of authority, both in society, within the church, and yes, within the household of families. So when Paul, when he says this is fitting in the Lord, he's saying wives, if I can put it this way, live out the basic characteristic of a Christian in relation to your husband. Submission is the default setting of the Christian heart, not, not standing on my own rights, but serving. When he, when he says then, wives, submit to your husbands, we need to recognize that you know, Paul's really not saying anything controversial at all here. 
the really controversial thing he is saying comes next. The really controversial thing that Paul says is what he says to husbands. Because in the ancient world, husbands and wives were primarily brought together, not on the basis of love, but as a matter of prudential and pragmatic concern. The main function and basis of marriage in the ancient world was not love, but the production of an heir to carry on the family. You know, if a couple happened to love one another, that was great, but that was not at all a concern in uh, marriage within the Roman culture. There was no expectation in the ancient world that marriages were to be based upon love. We actually have inscriptions of some of the tombstones from this time period. Let me read one of them to you. This is one written by a husband about his deceased wife. One reads, she never gave me any cause to complain. There's a real charmer for you, right? Real catch. No sense of grief and loss. My my beloved, how am I going to go on without her? How will I ever live without her? There's none of that. No sense of that at all. And that's not a surprise because love was not a normal part of the marriage equation. She never gave me any cause to complain. That was a normal sentiment. But look at what Paul says to husbands. If you are in Christ, if Christ is Lord of your marriage, husbands, love your wives. And he says there's no place, none, zero in the Christian marriage for harshness, ever, period. It can never be justified. Husbands, love your wives. Yes, you're to be a leader in the home. That's the teaching of the whole Bible. But it is to be a leadership that looks like the leadership of Jesus. Jesus leads, sacrificing himself, giving himself up for his bride in love, pouring himself out for her, laying himself down for her and his own concerns, setting them aside that she may have his heart. Husbands, love your wives. It's utterly countercultural in Paul's day. So love, the, the idea that marriage would be founded on love, my friends, that is not the invention of 19th century romanticism, nor is it the invention of Hollywood. It's rooted in the lordship of Jesus Christ over the family. And this isn't a mushy, gushy, feeling love that ebbs and flows, but doesn't really express itself beyond words and and feelings. No, it's a Jesus-like, sacrificial, self-giving, self-denying love to which Paul calls men here. So you see, when Jesus, the Lord, has your heart, he calls men to love their wives. That was the radical idea in Paul's context. Lead your home like Christ. And it begins in how you care for your wife. It's at least worth asking the question, who would not gladly submit to a husband who daily gives himself up entirely for his beloved? Isn't that what we all do with the Lord Jesus? Now, Now look at what he says then to children and fathers and as extension by an extension children and parents here in verses 20 through 21 
Uh, the thing that is pleasing in the Lord is for Christian children to obey their parents in everything. Apart from sin, of course. And in those days, you know, again, go back to these household codes. That's what we're reading here in Colossians chapter 3, which was not unique to the Bible. It was something that existed in Roman society. And within Roman society, household codes never spoke directly, as we said a moment ago, to slaves, and it never directly addressed children. It spoke only directly to the paterfamilias, the, house, the head of the household. Because just like slaves, children were viewed as property until they reached maturity. That's how they were regarded by the law. And so you'd never talk to the child directly. And like the slave, the child was not considered a responsible, independent moral agent. But once again, look at how Paul subverts the norm and speaks directly to the children. Children, obey your parents in everything. This is pleasing in the Lord. So boys and girls, Jesus calls you in the context of your family life to obey him by obeying your mom and dad. He, he speaks to you in this text and he views you with dignity and value and worth all your own and he's saying you're responsible in the context of your home. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're responsible in the context of your household to be obedient to your father and mother insofar as what they ask of you is not in contradiction with what Jesus wants for you. Now Christ calls you then to follow him. And here is one daily, practical, concrete way you do that. By obeying your mom and dad because it is pleasing to the Lord. And then Paul has a word for, for parents. Actually, it's worth noting that he speaks directly, and I think intentionally directly, in particular to fathers. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Hey, don't, don't berate them. Don't come down unnecessarily hard upon them. Don't demean them. Don't make unrealistic demands don't demand a level of sanctification in their lives that you yourself have not attained to. Shepherd them. Encourage them. Help them. Be careful that your default tone is not criticism and complaint. Let them see that you truly love them and delight in them and take pleasure in them, that you're proud of them, that you celebrate them. Don't crush their spirits is another way of putting it. Dear friends, Jesus doesn't do that with us, does he? He doesn't, he doesn't crush our spirits. This passage isn't meant to crush our spirits. I think if we hear it rightly, it's actually meant to encourage and empower us. It takes our responsibility as actors in a moral and ethical world seriously and says now that if you, if you are united to Jesus Christ, the Lord, let's see you live it out in a life that pleases him. And that's what we're to do, fathers, and by extension, parents toward our children. Nourish them in the path of obedience and the way of faith. 
Not discouraging their hearts, but nurturing them to see the infinite value and worth and beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that your children can, can look at you at the end of the day and say, you know what, not, not perfectly, certainly not flawlessly, often at times with noticeable weakness, yet truly and really I've learned so, so much about Jesus, not just by what my father has said to me, but by how he has lived with me. And the ways that he shepherded my heart, and the ways that he cared for me tenderly, and the ways that he was gentle with me in my ignorance, and the ways that he was so quick, like Christ, to show me grace. And dear friends, we, we want that, don't we? We want our children at the end of the day to be able to truly say, I've learned so much about my Savior Jesus Christ simply by looking at my Father. And when the world begins to see Christians, this isn't, this isn't super Christian spirituality, dear friends. This is Christians being Christians. And when the world begins to see Christians living like Christians, Christians living joyfully under the lordship of Christ with consciences free from the commandments of men, free to serve each other, living in a home transformed like this, where the usual structures of power and authority are transformed. So there's mutual service and love and tenderness. You know, the world at the end of the day will have no way of making any sense of that. Where does that come from? Because the basic building block of human society, the family, is transformed in Jesus Christ. Restored to what it's meant to be. You see, a new humanity in Jesus Christ displaying to all the world what the grace of God does in the hearts and lives of people as we learn to live together under the lordship of Jesus Christ. You know, part of my motivation desire as we look at this passage is to see us be bright, faithful witnesses in, in the world. We have put we have put so much stock in what we say to people. And what we say is really, really important, so don't mishear me. But you see, it's also how we live before the world that is part of our witness. And we need to understand that as we, as we bring people into our homes. We show them hospitality. And they see, they see a husband sacrificially laying down his life to love his, his spouse well. And a wife gladly following the leadership of her husband. And the father tenderly shepherding his children. And the children joyfully obeying their parents because it pleases Christ. They're going to ask the question, where in the world does this come from? And our answer, of course, is it doesn't come from us. It comes from Christ. From knowing him as Savior and Lord. Because he is making a new humanity in the midst of the brokenness of humanity in this world. 
Jesus is about the business of rescuing broken sinners and restoring them to what God intends us to be because grace restores nature. He's a God of the family. And so we need to understand that he's, he's making something new through his gracious work in our lives. And the invitation of this passage, dear friends, is, is to know it for yourself. To hear the invitation of the Lord Jesus Christ to come unto him. And yes, first of all, rest. To, to know the rest that Jesus Christ holds out to us. To set aside all of the exhausting, failing paradigms of this world. Perhaps even the exhausting, failing paradigms of Christians that are sub-biblical. And to return again to him and to his teaching and to take, as he says, his yoke upon you, the yoke of his teaching. And as Jesus says, his, 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 his yoke is easy and his burden is light. It will not crush you because his teaching is good. His ways are good. So I simply want to ask us this, this afternoon to come and to, to trust him afresh to submit our lives without reservation to the yoke of his teaching because we have the promise that as we do so, as we rest in him and submit ourselves to the lordship of King Jesus, that we will discover for ourselves the joy of submission to the Lord Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, how we long for our homes to be surrendered entirely to your lordship, but we also know that there is not a single family unit here this morning in whatever its shape that can say, well, we've arrived, we've got this. We are all struggling and failing and we need your grace. And so, Lord, we pray that your spirit would work within our hearts to eradicate the idols that remain who keep us from submitting our lives and our family lives entirely to the lordship of Christ Jesus the King. And if there are any here today who have been seeking to go their own way, who have been seeking to, to live according to the ways of contemporary culture and are finding that it fails them over and over again, May they hear loud and clear the invitation of Jesus Christ to come and find rest in him and the invitation to take upon themselves the yoke of his teaching. Would you draw them to yourself, Lord Jesus? It's in your name we pray. Amen.